0: A vision without execution is just a dream. Welcome to Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. Like the show title says, Chris speaks with transformative experts and business leaders who share their successes, failures, and leadership tips that will help you transform your business into a success story. Now, here's your host, Chris Elias.
1: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to Transformative Experts. Today, I have with me Donato Tremuto. Donato is a well-known global health activist, been around doing his thing for quite a while. He's former CEO of Trivity Health and um, founder of Healthy Villages, as well as the uh, Tremuto Foundation, and an author, among many, many other things. So welcome, Donato.
2: Great to be here, Chris. Thank you for having
1: me. So um, I am kind of curious, your 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 bio describes you as a global health activist among many, many other things. And I'm kind of curious what that means and how does one become a global health activist?
2: Well, it's interesting. I don't think I ever set out to have that, um, that description of my work get assigned to me. However, I think that that is probably what has been much of my motivation is not to look at titles. And, you know, I have a, um, a saying um, you rent your title, you own your dignity. And I think for my entire life, I've just been focused on wanting to do good in the world. And a lot of that has been triggered by the events in my life that um, uh, has driven me to be more compassionate and, and, and kinder to others. And, you know, I always say, if someone wants to put a title on me, that's fine. Uh, I don't do my work uh, to achieve uh, awards or titles Uh, That said, I also say that if in fact that does happen, it really is about the responsibility that I still have to make the world a more just and fair place. And so um, many of the awards that I have received over the years have put pressure on me because it's not about being honored um, for what you have achieved. It's more about the responsibility that you have to do more to make this world uh, a better place.
1: Yeah, that's excellent. So, you know, I'd like to know a little bit more about your story. You know, how did it all begin for you? And and how did you you move into this this area of, of work that you do?
2: Well, thank you for asking. You know, I always um, start off any conversation that I have with others with, tell me about your why. Uh, I don't want to know about your what. Nobody really cares what you do until they know why you do. And my why is, is actually twofold. I have my professional why and my personal why. My professional why was driven by the loss of my hearing at age eight Uh, for nearly 10 years. I had little to no hearing. I was bullied, made fun of uh, by classmates, uh, even my own family. I failed the fifth grade and I was voted most likely not to succeed. And yet with determination and with confidence from my parents who, who really committed to making sure that I had the best doctors and there were numerous medical errors that were made along the way. And my sister-in-law, who was my speech pathologist, she gets credit for my ability to speak today. Yet three months after I had my hearing restored, she died in childbirth. Oh she gosh. died in childbirth, a result of a medication error that should not ever happen. And a year, or two, it should be three years before she passed away. My my older brother lost his life in a car accident. So in the span of ten years, I lost my hearing, I lost my older brother, and I lost my sister-in-law uh, to childbirth. And so my professional why was if I ever had the opportunity. To commit myself to doing good in healthcare, that I would. And I spent the last four decades working to make sure that what happened to my sister in law, what happened to me in terms of medication errors, would never happen again to someone else. My personal why, unfortunately, came out of 9 11. Uh, I say unfortunately because uh, that was not only a dark day for uh, many of us here in the United States and across the world. It was a dark day for me personally. I was scheduled to be on uh, United Flight 175. uh, And because of a toothache, I changed my plans the day before in the afternoon. But my two friends and their three-year-old son who were staying with us in Maine, they kept their flight uh, scheduled on September 11th and lost their lives when the second plane uh, hit the South Tower On September 11th. I lived, they did not. And rather than have bitterness and anger in my heart, which by the way, I could have, and I think people would have been understanding of it, I dedicated myself in launching two not-for-profits and trying to channel uh, what happened on that day to doing good. And that's my personal why. Uh, For the last 21 years, we have helped uh, literally thousands, if not millions of people across the world get access to health care uh, and d- educating our young um, uh, students who are leaving high school with college scholarships and mentoring programs to allow them to realize their dream in life. And so that's my personal life.
1: So were you already in the healthcare profession when you started those nonprofits, or, or was that event the the launch into it for you?
2: No, no, I was uh, about 20 years um, uh, into uh, my healthcare endeavor. Um, 9-11 happening 21 years ago, I entered into healthcare in 1981, so I was about 20 years already into healthcare. However, not at the level where I'm at today, and so I do believe people can be transformed, I think my life on September 10th, 2001 was one of um, perhaps a little bit selfish, Mm -hmm. maybe not as philanthropic, um, perhaps a little bit um, uh, geared toward, um, you know, enjoying life solo. And I think that that event transformed me into much more of a compassionate leader, into one who realized that life is not about what you get but life is about what you give.
1: Yeah, no, no truer words have been said. And, you know, it's, it's, it's such a compelling story. And so this, this clearly, this was a, a you know, your why are all of our why should be our, our key motivator and hopefully people can find their why. I think a lot of people go through life without knowing what their why is. Um, You know, do you have what What advice would you give somebody who's trying to figure out what their purpose is? Who who is kind of going through life just kind of one step at a time? Maybe you know, stuck in a routine. You know, um, Mm -hmm. how how do you how do you start down that path of transformation and and start living a more purposeful life?
2: That's a very interesting question. I think for anyone who is looking to transform their lives, first of all, it's an evolution. However, the most important um, ingredient to getting there is to be vulnerable and to not follow what other people will say you should be. Just be yourself. It's a lot easier. From 2001, I became much more in tune with myself. I was not uh, willing in the past to share my hearing loss uh, the fact that I have a speech impediment, I still have to be very careful with certain words. The fact that I failed the fifth grade, once I opened up about that, oh, my gosh, the possibilities uh, emerge and the relationships blossomed. And so the first ingredient I would say is don't listen to what other people tell you who to be. Be yourself. Be vulnerable. And the twin sister to vulnerability is self reflection. Know that you're not always going to be perfect. And that by self reflecting every single day, you begin to have a greater understanding of who you are and what you want to be. And from there, you know, a great example when we launched the foundation in 2001, I wish I had a nickel for every person who said to me, Don't do it. There's enough foundations out there. Well, anytime someone has told me not to do it, I have done it. That's part of being who you are because a lot of people will pull you in a different direction. You need to follow your heart. You need to follow your passion. And I think that's another important ingredient follow your passion in life. And I'm not any different from anyone else. Um, I I sometimes get upset when people say, well, everything you touch turns into gold. No, it's because I'm determined when I have a belief in something, when I have a passion uh, for something that I want to do, I give my 1000%. And that's what I would would recommend. Be vulnerable, have self-awareness. And be who you are and don't let anyone else pull you in a different direction
1: you know it, it, it's such it's such great advice I, you know I myself went through a transformation where I went from um, back in 2000 I went from doing something I had no passion for to something I'm very passionate about today and and it does change and and I can think of a number of friends during that period of time that that one in particular said oh I could never do that I could never take that that break it's too scary. Um, fear stops a lot of people from this though. I mean, you know, before you got to that stage of vulnerability, um, you know, did you find that you had walls up? If you, if you look back in it today, were you, were you in like some type of protective mode and, and what, what were your fears that, that you had to set aside?
2: Well, listen, nobody likes to have criticism. It's why I don't like the word Feedback. I replace feedback with constructive insights. And so I think we all have fears that we're not going to be accepted. I think we have fears that we're going to be rejected. I think we have fears of failure. But I have a line, fail to succeed. And what I mean by that is that if you're failing to fail, then that's not good, (laughs) But if you fail to learn, and I have failed many times, I admitted that I failed the fifth grade. That was not uh, easy. I had a twin brother, by the way, who went ahead of me, and that hurt. However, I learned a lot from that experience. What I learned was pain. And from every situation that has occurred in my life, I've learned something about it. And so, yes, you're going to have moments where you're going to fail. That's okay if you've learned from it. If you fail and repeat the same error, then that's not good. And so I think if individuals can only realize that, um, it's very funny, I was a commencement speaker a few weeks ago at a college in Boston. I did something that I think really shocked the students. I went in there and I expressed my story about losing my hearing, but I put myself in the third person. So they didn't know it was me. And by the time I got done to the end, I said, that young boy was me. Chris, everyone jumped off their chair because they thought that I arrived from the sky, that I just Uh dropped down and I am what I am today. However, by sharing my story about all the failures and the fact that I couldn't speak, but here I am today giving the commencement speech to 5,000 people, it really helped them realize that you're going to have across the journey of your life you're going to have some rocky moments. And it's not the rocky moments that define you. It's what you do about them and how you get back up and pursue other wonderful events in your life.
1: You know, uh, what you were just saying there just rings so true. I mean, one of of the the exercises we do, especially with new clients early on, a lot of times what we'll do is we'll take um sometimes several hours it just depends on the size of the the group and and ask people to share their story and you know we believe there's like a 5 minute story and then there's a 30 minute story that we all have and then there's the you know several hour story which is reserved to people who know you very very closely but it's amazing when when I ask teams to just share their story. Let's go around the table. And some of these people have worked together for a long, long time and they don't know anything about each other and they wonder why they don't have Mm -hmm. connection. It's hard though. It's hard to be vulnerable and put all of that out because of the fear of criticism, because of fear of how people think. And yet it's the greatest thing you can do to create connection.
2: Absolutely. And, you know, we're not taught... Um, that enough though I am inspired by the younger generation I think the Gen Zers I am inspired by them I think that they are not afraid to express who they are you know when we were growing up I don't know whether this was true of you Chris but my parents used to say you know be seen but not heard Mm -hmm. (laughs) and today we're encouraging the young to be seen and heard and I think that that is great and I think that, you know, we're going to see a generation of young people uh, expressing themselves, speaking up for what they see as right or wrong. And I think that that is terrific. And I do see the tide changing that the younger generation will be much more innovative and bolder in terms of what they pursue. I mean, we talk right now about the great resonation. I don't think it's a great resonation. I think it's a great reflection. People are reflecting on their lives at a level that we have never seen at least in my lifetime
1: yeah it's it's really it's 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 about a um it's about a tremendous shift that's going on well you know i want to keep exploring that comment but we're already to the end of our first segment so we're going to just take a couple of minutes and um take a break and we will be back in just one minute It's time to transform your business with the help of The Execution Culture, co-written by your
0: host, Chris Elias. Make your company smarter, faster, and stronger with real-world advice on culture, leadership, and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. Is your company or team struggling to achieve the results you would like? Optimize your life, your team, and your organization through clarity, purpose, and action. At Nexecute, we have over 100 years of combined experience leading organizations and coaching individuals to achieve their vision. We design a customized approach to ensure successful execution and optimize your results. Connect better. Grow better. Take the next step and give us a call for a free consultation with your host, Chris Elias. 888-378-8808. That's 888-378-8808. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at com. Now, back to Transformative Experts. And we're back with
1: Donato Tremuto. So uh, just before the break, we were talking about um, your inspiration of, of Gen Zers. And, um, and I laughed when, when you said that as we were growing up, we were taught to be seen and not heard. I, I can... I can still hear my uncle say that <laughs> children are supposed to be seen and not heard. Go sit in the corner, kind of thing, you know. And you know we are giving, or maybe they're they've just taken it. The Gen Zers that we are giving voice, and I think it's a powerful thing. Um, you know, it, it is a, a time of reflection. People are shifting. I mean, you you've called it the great reflection, and we've called it the great shift. I it, people aren't resigning. I mean, you know, it's it's this this. That almost sounds like an excuse that companies want to use to, to talk to why people are leaving their company, and what they're missing out on is, is these people are not resigning; they're 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 changing their life, changing their path.
2: And well, I think what's happened here. By the way, you know, Chris, this isn't you know many people think this is a result of the pandemic. I disagree. I think this was happening before the uh, pandemic. Uh, you may or may not know this. One of the areas in healthcare that I have been devoting myself to is this new chronic condition of the 21st century called loneliness. Yes. There's an enormous amount, even though we have the greatest technology and you know connection activities going on, this is the era where people feel lonely, they feel isolated. And I think that adding the pandemic to that has brought people to really reflect what do they want out of the workforce? What do they want out of their lives? And I think what they're saying, we are not going into our workforce anymore just for a paycheck. We need to have more. I have often said the person that goes to work doesn't leave their personal issues on their front doorsteps no, they before they go to the office. They bring them to the office. And so I am encouraged that people are are asking themselves, what do I want out of my life? I want work-life balance. And if I can't get that, then I'm gonna look elsewhere. I, I, I don't wanna be in the office every single day. And by the way, the pandemic proved that you don't have to be in the office every single day. And so I, I think we're on the course of what I call a new leadership mantra. By the way, there's five generations in the workforce today. And the average age of the CEO is 59 years old. Wow. By the way, that's the same age of our elected officials in Washington. And so in a few years, the millennials and the Gen Zers will make up nearly 60% of the workforce. Yet it's still being led by an older generation of thinking and so that has to change. I give the example, I just hired a 23 year old uh, manager um, about a year ago. And I had to change my ways. Normally, I would have said, hey, listen, you know what? You still have to learn all of the different, you know, venues in the company. This individual has been one of the best contributors. And I am just amazed at her intellectual curiosity. And if I didn't bring her into every meeting and have her a part of every initiative, I don't think I would be keeping, you know, someone of her age and talent on board. And so we're going to have to understand that just because you're 23 years old has no relativity to the knowledge that you can bring to a certain situation. These young kids are much further along than perhaps I might have been at age twenty
1: three. Well, I think without question, I mean look what's happened with technology and 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 what they're learning. I mean, I can think of um, the years at which my daughter were learning, my daughter was learning certain aspects of math were much much earlier than when I learned them. You know, she graduated, you know, high school with a um, couple of years of calc behind her. And, you know, for us, calc wasn't even on the horizon unless you went to college, right? We didn't have computer program. I think we got our first computers right when I was a senior, and they were like hands-off to everybody. I mean, it just wasn't even a program yet. And so our kids are learning at a much more, um, at, a, at a much faster rate than we did And they are bringing more to the workforce at a younger age than we did. And I think we're having a hard time with that.
2: We are. Another thing I will add is that I do think that I am very, very optimistic about the young. I think it will be the young people working together. I came up with a word uh, a number of years ago when I was on a panel at Harvard. And the word that I created is collaboration. And what that word is, innovation and collaboration must come together. I think for too long, we have been focusing on innovation and not working with people. Or we've been focusing on just collaborating, but no innovation. We have to bring the two forces together. We have to continue to innovate and elevate our collaborative IQ. The higher your collaborative IQ, the more you can get done. And I think that's the tie that I'm seeing today in the society uh, whether it be an issue about uh, uh, equal rights or an issue about the fiscal disparity, we have to innovate and work together. And I think the way you do that is to, to to quit looking at what is different about us. There are so many things that are really common among ourselves. If you take the time, for example, to ask somebody about their life like you did today, well, you learn that, you know what, I, I have cancer and I didn't realize that you have cancer. And before you know it, you're talking about what it felt like to be diagnosed with cancer. And so you begin to find the common denominator. And I think that's what we need to educate our young people is let's stop focusing on what separates us and let's focus on what is common in our stories.
1: So, you know, I I guess as I think about this, I mean, you know, Let's let's face it. You know, you you know, whether whatever your media source you listen to, whatever, everything seems very divisive today. You know, it's 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 pulling people apart, and yet I, I believe there's a lot of good intent. I mean, there's a lot of desire to do just what you're saying. Is is it a result of just people have so much more access that so much is being heard right now we haven't figured out how to work with it or is it that people are pushing agendas i mean what is what is the aspect of it that that's keeping us from bringing it together and how do we bring that back around i think very quickly
2: we have not listened to understand we have listened to react And you can't even get something out of your mouth anymore that if you are on this side and you talk about an issue that might be, you know, politically sensitive before you know it, the other side erupts. And so we're not taking the time to have a conversation. We're having versations. And I think until we get to the point where we can listen to understand, I want to thank you. You listened to my entire story today. You didn't interrupt me. You listened to my entire story. And I think the more we can encourage that and the more we can train leaders to put their cell phones down, to put their reactive thinking to the side and listen to what the other person is really saying, we will begin to have a greater degree of understanding as opposed to a greater degree of reacting.
1: Yeah, I, I think you're you're 100 on point on that one. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I just, you know, I, 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 you know, sometimes it just it makes it almost hard. You see how people are going through their days doing exactly what you've just said, listening to react. I love the way you put that. I hadn't heard that term, but that that is what's going on. And, you know, the the, the part I struggle with, and I don't know what the answer is, um, but you know the the next step is people have to be willing to do this right it's one thing to say that this is what we need it's another thing to have a willingness to be vulnerable to step back and say you know what i need to change my behavior i have been listening to react yeah. i i you know i need to be self aware I, I think that that's that's going to be be our big hurdle and and hopefully there's enough of us out there that can start teaching and educating on this that we'll start seeing a change i i think what'll happen is as most things do is is change happens slowly and then quickly right um Well,
2: I'll give you a great example. You know, every time I have a dinner um, group at my home, I always ask a question at the dinner table to try to get people to understand the other person. This just happened a few weeks ago. I asked the question um, to everyone, which famous person uh, would you have loved to have been in their body? Well, we went around the table and somebody had given a name um, and the other person reacted. They never took the time to understand why they felt that. And I said, "Okay, everyone, this is a great example of what's happening now to the other person's credit. They were able to learn what they had done wrong is that they had given their answer. Everybody listened. When this person gave the answer that they didn't like, they reacted and it changed the entire temple of that conversation. So I do think people can be trained. I think that we have to help them. We have to be respectful and we have to really change
1: the course around how we dialogue in this country. So your book, the double bottom line, um, which, which really just came out recently. Um, and, and I apologize. I haven't had a chance to read it yet. I just got my copy not too long ago and I'm, I'm looking forward to cracking it and getting in. I'm, I'm an avid reader of books like this. Um, do you do you discuss this in that book? I do. In fact,
2: um, thank you for mentioning the book. We're very, very proud of it. It's been a, um, a two-year endeavor, uh, having interviewed 41 world leaders, uh, hundreds of hours of interviews, as well as surveying 1,500 people. And so we do provide uh, tutorial uh, steps of how you can achieve this goal of listening to understanding versus listening to react. And I'm a firm believer that compassionate leadership is about empathy in action. A lot of people will say, I feel sorry for this person, and they do nothing. But the kind of leadership that I am really proposing is leadership that has action associated with your words. And that's another thing that I think is quite frustrating is that a lot of people will talk about what's wrong in our country, and then they don't do anything. Imagine if every single person woke up every single day and did a little bit more to make the world a more compassionate and kinder place, boy, wouldn't it be wonderful uh, to live for the next, you know, thirty years? And so, I'm on a mission. This is just not a book. This is a a movement, and it's a mission for me.
1: So, you know, there there will be some that will argue that um, that you know, leaders of organizations, you know, they, they need to be you know hard nosed. They need to be driven, or I don't I don't know. I'm trying to come up with some of the other words. It might might and. You know, when when you take a word like compassion and add it to leadership, there's going to be people that are uncomfortable with that. Um, you're not talking about weak leadership, though. Leaders no. still need to be strong. And, and I think that's, I want to make sure we're very clear about that.
2: Absolutely. In fact, we break away from that myth. We break it down and tell you why it's not weak leadership. And I introduce a concept that I have used for many years called the three T's. That if you practice the three T's, you get to the tough part, but you do it in a way that really builds trust. And the three T's are use tenderness first. What you did here today asking about my story is a tender approach to getting to know me. Well, you immediately got my trust. And then you can be tenacious, which is the third T. Too many people go around and they're tenacious first and they have to go around with the pooper scooper. And so when I'm, you can gain the trust, which, by the way, there's an enormous amount of decay in trust today. If you can gain the trust, you should be able to have tough conversations. So it's not weak. It's approaching it in a way that gives you The greatest belief that you can accomplish what you need to accomplish with the individual without breaking down the relationship. You know, I am very touched that when I approached this book, I was only going to interview 10 leaders. I thought that's Mm -hmm. all I could really reach out to 41. Nobody said no to me. And I think a lot of it was because I practiced the three T's in my relationship with them. I built trust and there were times when I had to negotiate tough agreements with customers. I was a CEO of a public company, and we never left the negotiation table um, not trusting one another. And so we've got to get the trust back into organizations. we got to get the trust back into our society. And I think the best way you do it is to make sure you are following the three T's, and that is tenderness first. It takes a little bit longer to get to your tough decisions however you have a sustainable relationship that you have built along the way
1: you know back uh, back to the kind of the, the great resignation or um, the other terminologies that we were using uh, you know as I think about it and, and when when I'm looking at people that are leaving companies right now leaving my clients or, or or I talk to friends who are leaving their clients you know there's an old saying people don't leave companies they leave managers etc it seems like a break of trust is somewhere close to the root cause of almost every leaving, whether it is to leave to do something else, leave to go to another company, whatever.
2: Well, let me give you an example that just happened here a few weeks ago. Uh, One of our scholarship laureates joined a consultancy firm. And five weeks into his job, his boss wanted him to work on a charity. And he said, I really can't, you know, my friend's getting married next week and I'm having a bachelor's party for him. I'm more than happy to work on Sunday. I just can't work on Saturday. Do you know what the boss said to him? He said, you are worthless. I don't even know why I hired you. I don't know why I'm paying, but I'm paying you. Well, he called me and I said, reflect on this for a second. If he's doing this four weeks into your job, that's not gonna change. By the way, he was the founder of the company yeah. and he left as did five other um, uh, uh, partners. And so my point is there still is this hierarchical, I'm the boss, you're going to do it my way type of approach to leadership. And that's not gonna work. So this boss used toughness first. It was passive aggressive behavior, yeah. but he ruined, he ruined the employees entire weekend even the party that he had on Saturday, he couldn't enjoy, by the way, he did work on Sunday and got the job done. And so my point is that's just not going to work anymore. And for anyone who believes it's going to work, you're going to lose employees and your reputation is going to be tarnished.
1: You know, it's funny. I was, I was talking with a couple of the friends that um that are, are writing some, you know, in the process of writing some different books also. And, you know, we're, we're all just brainstorming and, and, came up with this idea. Maybe we need a book called stupid leadership, but then that's an oxymoron because you don't have leadership with with what some of these people are doing. Anyway, we're already up to our second break. So we have to take one more break and, um, you know, stay tuned. We will be back in just a minute keep the conversation going
0: follow your host on instagram at chris elias official and on facebook and twitter at the chris elias to discuss your own business transformations and get real world advice on culture leadership and execution see you there it's time to transform your business with the help of the execution culture co-written by your host chris elias make your company smarter faster and stronger with real world advice on culture Leadership and execution. The Execution Culture, available now on Amazon. This is Transformative Experts with Chris Elias. If you have a question or a comment about the show, please send an email to listener at transformativeexperts.com. Now, back to
1: Transformative Experts. And we're back one last time with uh, Donato Tremuto. So, Donato, just before the break, we were talking about I was joking, stupid leadership. But, you know, that old school command and control managerial type leader still exists in a lot of forms out there.
2: It does, and it's going to take some time. You know, these things don't change overnight. Um, What I am encouraged is that for the first time, you have an enormous amount of discussion going on Uh, at the boardroom, because this is not going to just happen with leaders. It has to happen in the boardroom. Mm -hmm. Our whole board composition has to change. And I don't think that we should be looking at board members as having to be in their forties and fifties anymore. I think we should be looking at younger individuals to join the board, individuals that have a good pulse of what's happening in the company. We have to start talking about culture. Um, It used to frustrate me. I used to get so Um, uh, upset that I would be rewarded if the stock went up on a given day. However, I never had any analysts ask me about the culture in the company. And so we have got to get back to understanding that if we're going to reinforce the productivity that we are looking for in this country, it has to start with meaningful, passionate um, um, events that are occurring in the company. It's funny, uh, the other day, I saw an article, I forget where I read it. They said, should we start appointing chief happiness officers? I thought that was really interesting. But when you think of it, you spend two-thirds of your life in the workforce. Yes, it should be an environment that creates enormous satisfaction for both parties. I love what some of the SEALs are doing. When the employees ask, uh, can I work from home? SEALs are saying work from wherever you feel you can be productive, just get the job done. And we did get the job done over the last few years. There's such a significant supply demand, you know, out there. And we're going to have to address this in a way that helps to increase happiness, satisfaction, and productivity, not just productivity.
1: Was this, um, so so culture comes up a lot in our conversations. And a lot of the work I do is around culture as well. And I just, I'm I'm with you. I believe that this is this is the core. People have to be happy. I mean, you know, yes, it's a third of our work. It's also, if you look at it from a, from a pure business standpoint, it's the it's the the highest investment we make in our companies is with our people. In, in every case, I mean, you know, that that's where we we spend our money. That's where we do it. Why wouldn't you want people to be happy? Why wouldn't you want people to be engaged I mean it, it, it's kind of almost seems like a ridiculous question to me and yet I don't see leaders always taking the actions required to get there. I think there are some very advanced leaders there are some some oh. leaders that have, have have crossed over there are some <laughs> younger leaders coming to who get it um, and yet there are some who resist. Having said all of that you know with these 41 leaders that you interviewed uh, was was culture a common theme? I mean tell me about some of the common themes you came across and um, and what drove success for them.
2: Well, one of the common themes, and we write about it in the book, is that, you know, we have said for many years, culture eats strategy for breakfast and lunch. And I'm going to ask you to throw that out. Trust eats culture and strategy for breakfast and for lunch. You can't get a culture to move in the direction that you are hoping it will move until you've gotten the trust. And I give an example of when I was appointed CEO of a public company. One division was making a lot of money. One division was losing a lot of money. Well, when you add the two together, you're not profitable. And I could have shut down that subperforming performing division and the market would have rewarded me. No. You know what I did? For six months, I went around and met with the several thousand employees in the company. I wanted to understand, were we competitive? What would they do? I did something, Chris, that had never been done before. I paid a company 25 million to take the division. I couldn't even sell it for a dollar. But I came up with that idea after speaking to the employees and we didn't lose one employee. There wasn't one bitter reaction. The stock went up and so my point is I got the trust from the employees first and then I started to define the culture. Too many of us when we get appointed to our executive level position, we pull the 90 day manual out and it says what? define the vision, mission, values, but we didn't get the trust. And so we think it's all sticking. You don't marry your spouse on the first hour you meet the individual. You develop trust over a period of time and then you define what you want your lives to look like. And so we're getting back to understanding how important trust is. But keep in mind, I go back to what I said earlier. The average age of a CEO right now is 59 years old, which means that they have been trained by individuals who were in the university college system in the 50s and 60s. So now we're seeing this change. By the way, I am so pleased we have one university that's taken the book and they're going to develop a leadership curriculum and they're going to offer a digital training. Uh, You'll have to pay for it, but you'll get a digital training In six, I think it's six to 10 hours, and you'll get a certification, a a certificate from the university for completing the course. I thought that that's terrific because we don't have
1: any lessons on compassionate leadership. So uh, can we name the university? Absolutely. Boston University. Boston University. I mean, you know, because, heck, that's a program I'll look up.
2: Yeah, Boston University School of Public Health um, is now going to convert Um, the book into a curriculum. And we have two colleges that are right behind Boston University School of Public Health. And so this is just terrific that their deans have read through the book. They see value in it, and it's going to help a whole new generation of leaders to understand how to be compassionate. I want to share with you an interesting story during COVID. I was coaching this one um, executive who shared with me a story. He wanted to get this purchase order signed. And so he called the executive from the company that he wanted the signed document from. And the executive started off from the other company with, you know what, my wife has COVID and so do my children. Do you know what the business executive did? He said, oh, I'm sorry to hear that. When will you get the purchase order signed for me? You know, he never got it signed. <laughs> and he asked me, what, I, what did I do wrong? He didn't know that it was okay to postpone that and just have a little bit of feeling and compassion. Harvard Business Review did a great study. 80% of leaders want to be compassionate, but they don't know how. Yeah, And that's what this book is about. It's going to help people like this executive that I shared with you, that it's okay to get into a topic that perhaps 40 years ago you would not have gotten into. You might have wanted to ask Is there anything I can do for your family?
1: (laughs) You know, I, I think about, you know, growing up, even in our family business, how much compassion there was in our leadership. I mean, we had an open door policy. Now we had two founders that, you know, grew up in the Great Depression and, you know, never went to college and. Didn't have two pennies to their name, and and, and built a, a very very successful large business. Yet it always felt like a small business. You know, um, my dad knew every person by first name on the on you know on the the warehouse and um, our production floors throughout our offices. I mean, it was just loved by everybody, and it was all because of that compassion piece. And I don't know that 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 he would have ever said that or my uncles would have ever used the word compassion back in those days in their language. Um, but that's what it was. I mean, it was, it was a connection that was there. And when, when my dad died and my uncle left or whatever, there was a huge shift in the company. I left the company and, and um, you know, it, it, it changed that compassion went away and it, it changed the culture forever. Yeah. And I,
2: listen, I, I think there has been so much that has happened in just the last two years. yeah, There's been a lot that's happened in the last 10, 20 years. And I do think that uh, leaders um, need the tools, they need the skills to be able to practice this kind of leadership. And so I chuckled when I saw this article about perhaps maybe we should be changing the HR to chief happiness officer. You know, that's not necessarily a bad you know recommendation. We need to give the executives the tools And by the way, there's a lot of data in the book that I think will help leaders. You know, this is not um, the advice, according to myself and 41 other leaders. There's some rich data that really supports many of the topics that you and I are discussing here today that I think will really give some credence to anybody that might have doubts on this.
1: Yeah, it's um it's it's such good stuff. Um we've got a couple minutes left. You know, I your stories are so great and so you talk about the different tools and um and you've got some good stories. I wonder, you know, is there a specific tool while we've got a couple minutes that that you want to that that you can highlight for us if, if so if I've got a leader listening to this thinking exactly what you just said, you know, yeah, you know, I would like to show more compassion, but how do I do that? How do I do that not look weak? How do I do that and still build my organization? What would be your your let's say your one bit of advice or or thing that they can start putting into practice right now
2: read the book and uh, the other i would say is that uh, we have created a whole website around this so uh, they can go to my website donato com. we have various podcasts that uh, have been developed with other leaders there are tools uh, that they can access and um, uh, when the Boston University uh, School of Public Health curriculum comes out, we'll have it up on the website. And so uh, I think that the tools are there. Um, you're going to have to devote the time and the commitment to reading and studying up on this topic.
1: You know, I, I, that last comment, I want to I highlight it and reiterate it. You have to devote the time. You have to put energy behind this. You know, uh, there's there's really no kind of tool or leadership trade or anything that that you can just turn a switch and put into action, you know, in the next five minutes. It just doesn't happen that way. You have to, you have to do some, some internal work and some hard wiring. Absolutely. Listen, um, I remember seeing a a poster a few years
2: ago and I forget who, um, who owns the quote, but uh, let me certainly give you the quote. Um, When you're through developing, you're through. And I have always taken the time to reflect on my life. And by the way, there's a risk here. You know, if you're going to be vulnerable, you're going to share your life. You're going to have a few that are going to probably poke fun at it. Um, But you know what? I'm a firm believer that I'm not in this, you know, to get upset by the minority. I'm in this to really help the majority. And so, by the way, the last thing we haven't talked about is why is this good for you to practice compassionate leadership? You feel better. No leader likes to go home at night knowing that they may have messed up in a conversation and they just were too stubborn to admit that they might've been wrong. And they did not apologize. They go home and they take it out on their family or, you know, they don't want to watch TV that night or they're not happy. And so you feel better. And I'll leave you with one last example. I was on a plane one time and the plane had not taken off and we were having a conference call with my direct reports. And one of the executives uh, I was trying to be tender, Chris, but the executive wasn't really getting it. And so I had to be tenacious. And I basically said something like, listen, I'm the CEO and we're going to take this direction. Well, the doors you know, closed for two and a half hours. I was not happy. I knew that I had said the wrong thing and I was not happy. I didn't want to eat. I didn't want to talk to anyone. When that plane landed, what do you think I did? I got on the phone and called that executive. And you know what? I apologize. And then she apologized. And we both started talking about, you know, hey, listen, we've got to find a way where we can work together. And she said something to me. I never forgot. She said, you're the first CEO to ever call me and apologize. What? I'm the first CEO to have done that. So, you know, let me tell you, when I went home that night, I felt terrific as opposed to going home and letting that just kind of, you know, wallow in my tummy you feel better. Your wellness is a lot better and you're going to be more effective.
1: Yeah. Isn't that the truth? Well, um, we've got just a, a minute or two left here. And so I want to make sure we highlight this. So um, it's, it's the Double Bottom Line by Donato, D-O-N-A-T-O, Tremuto, T-R-A-M-U-T-O. I'm assuming it's available on Amazon and Barnes and Nobles and all the, the bookseller sites. They are. Yep. And um, you have a website. Um, could you please spell it out for our listeners? Sure. Uh, Donatotramuto D-O-N-A-T-O. T-R-A-M-U-T-O.com. Excellent. So it's 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 your name.com. Uh, you know, this has been just uh, it's it's been a great conversation. I I, I wish we had more time. I, there's I've got probably more questions now than when I started, and I've enjoyed every minute of it, Donato. Thank you so much for being with me this morning.
2: Thank you, Chris. And you know, my you know gratitude to you for hosting these types of of um, uh, radio talk uh, topics because I think it really will help a lot of people.
1: Yeah, and, and this is this is something that that today is needed more than than ever you know, um, uh-huh. compassion and true compassion, you know, that can help others, help people grow, support organizations. Um, it's not about weakness or weak leadership. It's actually about being the strongest type of leader you can possibly be. So thank you again. Um, it's been been—it's been a great conversation. Folks, we've got more great um, guests coming up in the next few weeks. So stay tuned and thank you for listening.
0: Thank you for joining Chris Elias for this week's edition of Transformative Experts. We hope you'll tune in again next Monday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And catch our weekly replay on the Voice America Influencers Channel, Sundays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. Have a good week.